I was ready to sing another praise song there, Greg. (laughs) All right, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning, and we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. And we are going to be looking at verse 20 to verse 35. That's the whole rest of the chapter. And today we're going to be looking at really and discussing outsiders and insiders. It's a very important uh, uh, understanding that we should have as believers. And, And the question is, are you on the inside or are you on the outside? There's always a crowd, but just because you're in the crowd doesn't mean you're on the inside. So that's what we're going to look at this morning in this passage of Scripture. Many things going on here, so take your Bibles, take your uh, iPads, your phones, whatever you're using today, and follow along as we look at this. And I am in the New American Standard Bible, uh, so um, it may be a little different if you're using the ESV, but that, uh, the difference is very slight. Let's pray. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you today for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that uh, we're able to open it up and read it and study it and hear it. And I pray, Lord, that as we do that, our hunger for the Word of God would increase and it would never decrease. And, Lord, if it does decrease, then we would know we would have to look for sin because sin is the very thing that stifles us for having a desire for the Word. So, Lord, let us do that, repent and turn from that sin, and then get back into following you, hearing your Word, Uh, and then putting it into practice in our life. And so, Lord, I pray today that we would all know whether we are on the inside or the outside. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Now, Before I look into the text, I just want to let you know that there's been a widespread fame of Jesus Christ all throughout the land, north, south, east, west. Uh, And of course, everybody heard about what Jesus was doing in his miracles, in casting out demons, in healing, and preaching with authority that no one ever heard before. And so they were coming from everywhere uh, to hear about Jesus, to see him, uh, to touch him, all kinds of things were going on. And so because of this exponential growth, it drew different crowds. And of course, those crowds drew opposition and also problems. Now, throughout the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, the audience of Jesus really splits into two groupings, followers and opponents. Now, just because someone's an opponent doesn't mean later on they can become a follower. And it doesn't mean just, just because someone's a follower, later on they can drop out and not follow Jesus anymore. So both of those dynamics are going on throughout the Gospel of Mark. All right, Of course, you want to be asking yourself, am I a follower? So even when Jesus picks those who will be close to him to be his pupils, 
it infuri- and that's his apostles, it, infuria- it infuriates the religious leadership of the day. And how does it infuriate them? Well, remember that when a young man wanted to be under the tutelage of a religious teacher like a rabbi and go to an advanced Torah class or into some kind of training, the teacher would not seek out the student. The student would seek out the teacher. Well, Jesus, in this case, is seeking out the pupils. So he's doing the completely opposite of what is the norm in the day. And so Jesus prophetically calls to himself 12 men who will be his apostles. And how does he do that? Well, from Mark chapter 3, verse number 13, he prays all night prayer meeting before the Father. He asks the Father which ones he should pick. And then he gets up the next day and he picks them. In verse number 13 of chapter 3, he summons uh, the workers to himself. And if you notice what it says in chapter 3, verse 13, it says, and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. All right, And then this group would become the inner circle. But remember, even in this inner circle, there was someone who would betray him. And of course, that we all know is Judas Iscariot, all right? And then what he does is he appoints them in verse number 14 of chapter 3. He appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out. So he wanted them around him so he could teach them. And who does he choose? He chooses fishermen. He chooses uneducated men. doesn't mean they weren't smart men. It just means they had no formal education. He chooses stubborn men. Tough men, he chooses skeptical men, and he chooses a tax collector and an insurrectionist who wanted to overthrow the government of Rome. So all these men are in his group, called the Twelve. So Jesus is committed to invest in them, to teach them, and to prepare them to carry on his mission. How does he do it? He teaches in all kinds of ways. He uses brevity. He uses imagery. He uses vivid language. He uses parallelism. He uses rhyme and rhythm. He uses pairs and alliteration. He uses aphorisms. He uses all kinds of things. And he also connects events with instruction and involves himself in memorable dialogue with other people before the disciples and even in controversial discussions before the disciples, before the apostles, so they could learn how to do it. So they were his followers, and the 12 were considered to be the inside circle. And what were they to do? They were, do, they, they were to do the exact same thing that Jesus was going to do, and that was summarized up in two words, that Jesus was going to go preach the gospel of the kingdom, all right? And that's the only way anyone can get into the kingdom is by receiving the message of the kingdom, all right? And then, of course, he was going to dismantle the kingdom of Satan. And that's exactly what they were going to do in verse 14, In verse 15 of Mark chapter 3, they were going to preach and then to have authority to cast out demons. So the 12 are specifically appointed servants of the kingdom to help carry out the work of Jesus Christ. And the 12, again, were the inside crowd. However, 
there are those who are part of the crowd that's surrounding Jesus, and they think they are followers of Jesus, but actually they stand in opposition to him because they want him for the wrong reasons. They want him just to heal them. They want him to do something for them. So you see, a person may be on the outside crowd near Jesus and never be part of the inside crowd. This Lord's Day, I would like you to consider in our text and think, what section of the crowd would you find yourself? And I think at the end, it's going to become abundantly clear whether you are in the inside crowd or the outside crowd. Now, let's pick it up in verse number 20. But before I read that, I want you to let you know that in this section of Scripture, there are three groups mentioned. And there are these three groups reflect three responses to Jesus' ministry. Only one group and one response is correct. The rest of them are not. You'll find that you'll see that in the text. So Jesus and his disciples have come back either to Peter's house in Capernaum or to Jesus' home. We don't know which one uh, he came to, but they're very close together. So after much demanding ministry, they're weary from travel, they're weary from work, and all they want to do is they want to get a little lunch. That's all they want, and they want to relax. All right, but look at what happens, and this we'll pick it up. And this shows us about the general group. This is the general group first. Verse 20, all right, look what it says. And he came home. He's, t- he's talking about Jesus. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. So they get to the house, and they can't even get in to eat. The crowd is, was demanding, the crowd was needy, the crowd was thick, and to such an extent that they couldn't even get some, something to eat and rest a while. The crowd really didn't care about Jesus, now, uh, nor did they care about the chosen apostles that he just uh, picked. They only wanted to get something from him, something from them. So then, the general crowd of followers were still on the outside, but they wanted to get near Jesus. But instead of getting near Jesus, they were actually an obstacle for his mission and not a benefit for his mission. So this is troubling in in the, the crowd that is at the door, that is blocking the way where they can't even eat. But what is more troubling is what happens next. And here's the first group. And the first group is this. Jesus' family, who seems to misunderstand him at this point, and they actually become his opponents, and they are outsiders also. Look what it says in verse 21. It says, When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. Now, let me stop there for a minute. Now, it says here, his own people came to him. Now, who are they? Some say that they are his associates. Others say 
it's referring to his family and his friends. Now, in my investigation, it, what I found out, it leads me to conclude that this group is family. Um, and why do I say that? If you look down at verse 32, it shows up again. They show up again. It says, look at verse 32, chapter 3. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. All right, so again, there, here is the crowd, and the family comes to that particular area where Jesus is, that house, and they're asking for Jesus. All right, in this case, they are too. So verse 21, uh, why did they come for Jesus? Well, it wasn't to enhance his ministry. It wasn't to uh, encourage him in any way. It wasn't even to feed him, being that he couldn't get any food in the house. If you look in verse number 21, this it tells us, it says, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now, this is the view of his family. The view of his family is this. Listen, he's beside himself. He's out of his senses. He's out of his mind. He, somewhere down the line, has lost it. Now, those closest to Jesus have a mistaken apprehension of him. And instead of becoming his followers, they become the crowd, outside crowd that is actually against him. And they're just like the religious authorities. So instead of being Jesus' advocates, they become his opponents and his own family had concluded that he had taken leave of his senses and that it was time to take him home. Now, what was their response? Their response was that it was time, literally it means to get him into their power. The scripture says that it was time to take custody of him. Some translations say to seize him. So they were there to say, okay, I think Jesus has gone, let's have a family forum him, Jesus has gone too far. He's inflamed everybody in this whole country, and he needs to be stopped. All right, maybe today we say, let's bring him home and give him some medication and let him uh, settle down a bit because he's too focused. He's got too much zeal, Uh, and uh, let's, let's do that. And, and, and so that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to take him back home and kind of settle him down a bit. And Jesus, of course, remember, had kicked up so much dust and stirred up so much controversy, it was time for the family to intervene. Now, it may be good to remember at this point that his family members did not yet believe. In fact, the Gospel of John says this in chapter 7, for not even his brothers were believing. Now, we do know that his brothers did believe later on. So, but now they're in the outside crowd, all right? And they're kind of getting upset about what he's doing. In fact, Mark is using a literary device here called the sandwich story. And what that means, think of, think of a sandwich. You've got the top slice of bread. You have the meat uh, and uh, tomatoes or lettuce in the middle. And then you have the bottom slice of bread. Okay, this top slice of bread is that they come to the house and a crowd surrounds the house and on the outside entrance. And so companions of Jesus try to 
control him or suppress him. So that would be A, B, A, if it's in a, a kind of a chiastic structure. A would be the top piece of slice of bread. Another A would be the bottom slice of bread, and that would be in verse number 32, where his family shows up again and says, hey, your family's outside, and they're looking for your brothers and mother. They're looking for you. And so, again, there's the sandwich. And everything else in between is going to be what Jesus is teaching. Now, the first time they wanted to bind Jesus and suppress him, the second group really comes for the same reason, to suppress him and to try to take him away because he's lost his mind. But in the middle section, we're going to see, this is what happens, and we'll get, we'll get there. And it's the B. A-B is the middle. It's the meat and it's the middle of the sandwich that Jesus binds the strong man, Satan, and frees his captives to become followers of the strong man, Jesus, or the strong man, God's son. So the authority of Jesus binds the prince of demons. So people come to bind him, suppress him, his family, and others, but now Jesus is the one doing the binding. All right, now we'll see that as we develop. Now, let me just back up a minute in our text because some suggestions, uh, some reasons of why his family would come to this conclusion about him. Uh, And, of course, it would be no sensible man would take such risks as Jesus. And why is that? Well, here's the first thing. It doesn't make sense to leave a flourishing carpenter's business with a regular income to become a vagrant who didn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus said that of himself. All right? So Jesus throws away his security. It's all about security, isn't it? All right? People cherish security. But Jesus throws it away. A second reason could be this. It doesn't make sense to put himself up against the powerful, influential, and political powers of the day. See, the odds are he's not going to get away with it for a long time. He's crazy to stand up against the Pharisees and the scribes and the political Herodians and the rabbis. And so he throws away his not only security, but his safety. He is opening him up to the tax from all over the place. And then another reason, it doesn't make sense that any man should get mixed up with such odd followers. Fishermen, a former tax collector, and a fanatical nationalist. See, Jesus, what he's doing is he's throwing away social acceptance. All the things that we cherish social acceptance, people would like us, that we would have security in our our life, and that we would have safety. He's throwing every one of these things away, and they don't mean anything to him. See, it didn't matter what people would think and say about Jesus. He was not lured in by society's or family's acceptance or approval. See, he was considered just to be too fanatical. Now, what is funny of this kind of teaching here is this. Isn't it funny that as soon as a Christian gets zealous about their faith 
and passionate about the word of God and following Christ, they are considered, in a negative way, fanatics, right? But someone can paint their face with two colors of their favorite sports team and go into a stadium a public stadium, and act like a nut before cameras and be considered in a positive way fans. It seems so ironic, but that's what happens. And I'm sure, I am sure you have been, uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, someone has probably already labeled you as a fanatic, a holy roller, a brainwashed in a cult. Uh, You lost your mind, and hopefully someday you'll gain back your senses only because you follow Christ, only because you say Christ is the only way, only because you say that the only one who could be right with the Father is through coming through the Son in repentance and faith to enter into the kingdom of God, only because you say my life is, and, and show your life is different than it used to be. You don't go and do what you used to do anymore. You don't go and get drunk and take drugs and, and you know, live this uh, promiscuous lifestyle anymore. Why? Because you came to Christ and then people are calling you crazy. When in reality, when you come to Christ, you become sane. And every, before you came to Christ, you were insane. Get that? Because you start seeing reality the way it really is. Why? Because the Bible is real. The Bible's a real book. The Bible's communicating to people. It's not a musty old thing that, and some old fable up there and, 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 you know, that we shouldn't follow. No, it's real. It's alive. It's active. It's cutting because it comes from God. And God's our creator, so God knows exactly what we need and how to bring it to us. So that's group one. Group number two is found in verse number 22. And this group are the critics who accused Jesus of being a sorcerer in cahoots with Satan. Of course, they clearly become his opponents. Now, before I read verse number 22, remember, the scribes are already documented as official opponents of Jesus. At this point, they could not downplay the authenticity of Jesus' miracles. However, They had to come up with some kind of explanation for Jesus' authority over demons. They were past asking insinuating questions. Now it was time for a frontal attack. So look at verse number 22. Here's the frontal attack, and the opponents attacked the source of Jesus' power. It says this, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, verse 22, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out demons by the rulers of demons. Now, this is their response to Jesus' ministry. And their response is they decide to attack the source from which Jesus acquired his power to be able to cast out demons. The religious leadership concluded that he is also insane, and he is insane because... He's possessed by evil spirits, or he's driven by evil spirits. So that's their accusation. That's their response to Jesus' ministry. Now, what is amazing, in the next several verses, is Jesus does not display 
a man who is insane. He displays a man who is in charge of his faculties. And look what he does to the accusations against them. He really says to them, listen, your accusations, my friends, are ridiculous. And I'm going to prove that. And because Jesus called his critics out and began to speak to them in parables. Now look at what it says in verse 30, 23 of chapter 3. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. Now, let me just stop for a minute because this is the first time Jesus is using parables in his ministry. And so what is a parable? Well, a parable is a teaching device, all right? And it really means comparison or analogy. Now, there's a couple things about parables. First, they are connected with the central message that God has begun to assert his kingly power against evil and the promised salvation that was already at hand because the message of the gospel was being preached. So that's connected in all the parables you're going to see from now on. A second thing about parables is this. It's not meant to be fully obvious what Jesus is saying. Matter of fact, it's meant, is not meant to be transparent. It requires the hearer or reader to use some effort to get their point and then provoke the hearer or the reader to a response of either repentance, meaning this, you know what, I was thinking this way, and man, my thinking is all wrong about how you get into the kingdom of God. But now that I hear what you're saying, I repent of that thinking and I embrace the truth that God is communicating to me. Or it could also bear the response of outright rejection. So that's what parables are, all right? And they are meant to be hid to those religious rulers and open to his disciples, all right? And we're going to see that. Matter of fact, the next section of Scripture is going to be the parable of the sower. So he, he, exp- he does that whole parable the next time. So there's one thing about a parable that it, it is not, and I want to stress this very emphatically. It is not simply stories illustrating moral truths. It is not that. Some people like to make it those things, but it is not All right, back to the text. Look at verse number 23. Jesus asks the question. All right, you accuse me of this, that I do these things in the power of Satan? All right, look what he says in verse number 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, of course, he doesn't wait for their response because they don't really have a good response. All right? They have no response. So Jesus responds, and he responds by using the if word. Now, I don't know, we don't always get this in the English language, but in the Greek, there are different classes of if, all right? And he uses two classes of ifs here. He uses a third-class conditional if, and then he uses a first-class conditional if. Now, of course, that seems all very technical, but look what it says in verse number 24. It says, if a kingdom is divided against itself... That kingdom cannot stand. All right, you see that? Well, here he uses a third-class conditional if, and that simply means this. It's the condition of reality. All right? It's, it's a condition of reality. And so it would go something like this. In other words, if, 
this really takes place, that a kingdom is divided against itself in purpose and in goals, it cannot stand. You know, that's like a no-brainer here. Everybody knows that. So see, the reasoning is not that of an insane man. It's that of a very rational and clear-thinking person. And then notice the second thing in verse 25. He uses a second illustration. The first one was about the kingdom. The second one is about a house. But it's the same thing. Illustration 2, verse 25. If, there's the same third-class conditional is a condition of reality, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, everybody knows that if you have fighting and bickering going on in a home constantly, 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 and it never lets up and there's never any solution, it will finally fall apart. Everybody knows that. So Jesus is using the most common sense you could use. In fact, the condition is a condition of reality. And if it, this is, really takes place, that a household is divided against itself in purpose and goals, it cannot stand. Common knowledge that everyone understands. So that's what's happening. So Jesus is saying, listen, here's the accusation against me, but now that you accuse me of this, I'm just showing you that if that's the case, that I'm empowered by Satan to cast out demons, then his kingdom, his house is going to fall apart. So the next condition in Mark chapter 3, verse 26, the if term switches to a first class, and the first class condition is for the sake of argument type of condition for the sake of arguments and to convince his opponents jesus for the moment admits what they really claim namely that satan has risen up against himself and has been divided so the first class if switches to the past situation namely jesus past exorcisms in which Jesus is accused by the scribes of complicity with Satan in such an endeavor. So Jesus' response is that if that had been the case, or if that is the case, then Satan has risen up against himself. And if Jesus were casting out demons by Satan's power, then Satan's kingdom will not stand. Look at verse number 26. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. And then it says this, But what? He's finished. He's shooting himself in the foot. He's shooting himself in the head. He's killing himself. He's destroying any power that he has. Now, what is, again, unique about Scripture is what is actually happening happening is the opposite. See, here's the reality. The opposite is true. The reality of the situation is that Jesus has been snatching demoniacs out of Satan's power by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what it says in verse 27. All right? But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Now, this is what he says to them. Satan is the strong man. His house 
is the realm of sin and sickness and demon possession and death. His possessions are people who are enslaved by one or more of those things. And demons are his agents to carry out his diabolical activity throughout the whole world. And no one can enter his realm and carry off his possessions unless he first binds the strong man. That means that one has to show themselves more powerful than the person who owns the stuff. All right? When he overpowers him, then he can rob his realm and release the enslaved victims. So in other words, Jesus is the strong one. He's the one empowered by the Holy Spirit. His mission is to confront and overpower, not to cooperate with Satan, but to deliver those enslaved by him. And how does he do that? By the gospel. So, see, Jesus is saying, you're thinking this is going on? This is what's really going on. I've been preaching the gospel, and I've been snatching people from Satan's kingdom ever since. Matter of fact, that's what the church has been doing ever since, because that's our job too, all right? And we don't do it by casting out demons, by binding demons, by doing those. We have no power to do that. We do it by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And when you preach the gospel of the kingdom and someone believes that, the demons can't stay. They have to leave, and they'll go somewhere else. But in the midst of that, Jesus also says something very, very, very strong to them, a very strong warning to them. Matter of fact, that warning is to us too. This is probably one of the most scariest passages of scriptures I I would know in this part of the Bible. And look what it says. And I want to read it to you because this has to do with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. And it says this, truly, verse number 28, I say to you, all sin shall be given the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of eternal sin why verse 30 because they were saying he has an unclean spirit now let me just back up for a minute because this is a really an important text i don't want you to misunderstand it blasphemy can be used in a very general way And blasphemy can be used in a very specific way. Well, right here in our text, it's used in a specific way. All right? So, but let me just give you the general sense of blasphemy. Blasphemy, in general, is a verbal sin. It's one committed with the mouth or with a pen. It involves speaking a word against God. One theologian um, said this. It is a desecration of the holy character of God. It can involve insulting him, mocking him, dishonoring him. And in a sense, it is the opposite of praise. It is the opposite of any worship. Even casually using the name of God by saying, and everybody does seems to do this, oh my God, or OMG if you're texting, I, I, I would encourage you to stop doing that and stop saying that. Uh, because that even constitutes general blasphemy. 
because God is, cannot be brought down to that level, to some casual language that we kick around like just anything else. If we have reverence, if we understand God is holy, if we understand that God does not take a neutral position against sin, that either God forgives sin or he judges, judges sin, there's no in-between, then we would be more careful how we would use this kind of slang, cultural language that slips off our tongue like it's all right. So be careful about that particular phrase. Now, we can be thankful that the unpardonable, the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, is not just any kind of blasphemy. Because it is, uh, if it were, none of us would have any hope of, e- of eternal life, but we would all be damned. So general, in other words, general blasphemy can be forgiven. But there is a specific sin that cannot be given. So specifically, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? In the context of our passage, Jesus' opponents charge him with doing his work by the power of the devil rather than the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. However... They were not slandering the Spirit, not quite, according to R.C. Sproul. And I believe that because, see, Jesus says, any blasphemies against me can be forgiven. But any blasphemy against the Spirit of God cannot be forgiven. So right now, the blasphemy that was being committed by them was really against Jesus himself. All right, now that's, that's important because... These statements are directed against Jesus. So he said to them, you can blaspheme me and be forgiven. But when you question the work of the Spirit, you are coming perilously close to the unforgivable sin. You're right at the line. You are looking down into the abyss of hell. One more step and there will be no more hope for you. So Jesus, in this passage, is giving a strong warning to be very careful not to insult or to mock the Spirit or to say the Spirit is doing something evil. Jesus warns them. Now, I don't think they were ready for that. I don't think anybody's ready for that. The idea of of the unforgivable sin has haunted the minds of sensitive people all through the ages. However, Jesus Jesus is warning against disregarding his message by calling it satanic, and that is a specific deed. I believe that Christians are prevented from saying that and doing that. Now, I could pick it up in Hebrews chapter 6 and go a little further with that, but I have no time to do that. So, if you remember, back in the uh, first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, the Bible already told us the source of Jesus' ministry, right? At his baptism, what does it say? That the heavens opened and the Spirit, like a dove, descended upon him. For what reason? So he can carry on the work of God in the fullness of the power of the Spirit of God. So see, these guys got it wrong. They got it completely wrong, and they were right on the brink of committing the unforgivable sin. So when Jesus stood up also in the synagogue to read the Scripture, he, remember, opened up the 
book of Isaiah. And what, he said, what did he say there? He said, and he took the book, and, the, and he said this. He opened the book and found the place where it is written in Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me, what? To preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim the release of captives and to recovery of, of sight to the blind, to free those who are trodden down, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. See, so in the word of God, the Bible is telling us here that God Jesus Christ was doing everything by the Spirit of God. And you can't attribute anything to, the, to that of anything evil or demonic. So the source by which Jesus carries out all of his ministry was the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the second group. Now, the, here's the sandwich. Here's the bottom of the sandwich. And that means the first group shows up again. Look at verse number 31, all right? The first group shows up, and, of course, that is his family who still misunderstands him. And notice what it says in verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and notice the language. Notice the language. I want you to see the specifics. Standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. Now, see that word outside? Why wasn't his family near him inside? Because they weren't yet believing. That's why. They were still on the outside. They were still in the crowd that was his opponents and against him. All right, so look what Jesus says. And here's the third group. And remember, the third group is the only group that you want to be in. And here it is. Look at verse number 32. And now notice this, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. There's that outside again. Look at how he answered. Verse 33, and answering them, he said, who are my mother and brothers? Look about at those who are sitting around me. He said, around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. And he said, he was doing this. Everybody sitting around him said, these are my mothers and my brothers. Why is that so? Look at, look at the last verse. This is verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So what was he saying here? One theologian rightly concluded that these words were not a repudiation by Jesus of his mother and brothers. Instead, they are a profound teaching about the union someone has with Christ. That Jesus declared that those who believe in him and do God's will have a relationship with him that is closer than any blood relationship between parents and children and siblings. So what is the response of this third group? It's the only correct one. Here's the response. It's those who sit at the feet of Jesus as disciples. These are doing the will of God, and are treated favorably as Jesus' true family. What were they doing 
sitting around him. You know what they were doing? They were listening to his teaching. They were hungering after everything that came out of his mouth. They were watching everything he did, and they have concluded that this is someone greater than a man. This is someone who is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. This is someone who is doing something by the power of God. This is someone I want to follow that I've never met before. This is someone that when you meet Jesus, you can no, go nowhere else. There's no one else to go to. That's what they concluded. So here's the point. If you want to be considered in, to be an insider, you have to be spiritually related to Jesus. And that entrance into the kingdom of God is gained by doing the will of God. So, how does such obedience begin? Well, I'm glad you asked that. It's by hearing. It's by believing. It's by following the Son of God. Now, if you remember back in the first chapter of Mark, in verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. So the human obligation was to hear the gospel, to obey the gospel. And how did you obey it? By repenting of your sin and turning from it to believe. And that means you turn to someone, and that someone and that object of your belief is Jesus Christ. So to believe in something is to accept the truth value of that proposition and the person who gives it. And it changes then your thinking, and it changes your behavior, and it changes your direction. The direction of these particular disciples that sat around Jesus wanted to follow him. They were in the in crowd. So by the preaching of the word of God, the scriptures reveal the status and dignity and significance of Jesus Christ. By the gospel, by believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God. He is God's own way of salvation, that God sent Jesus to the cross that God put all our sins on him and punished them in him. Now, that message is going to become clear soon in the Gospel of Mark. But believing the Gospel means that you stop all self-justification and every reliance upon your good deeds and all your own efforts. Either you are dependent on your own righteousness or God's righteousness. Most think that entry into the kingdom of God is predicated on the prerequisite of human righteousness and obedience. However, the kingdom of God is not a matter of human effort. It's a matter of God's grace. It's a matter of receiving the gift that he offers, us to, offers to us. So no one can enter the kingdom of God without repentance and without fleeing from sin and putting trust in Christ alone. But the key here is that to be in the in crowd, you cannot waffle on these imperatives to enter the kingdom of God. Once you enter, you will be the crowd who is forever sitting around Jesus. You are the crowd who is ever following Jesus. You are the crowd 
who is ever learning from Jesus. You are the crowd who is ever worshiping Jesus. You are the crowd who is ever growing in love for God and others because of what Jesus has done. That is the group you want to be in. You don't want to be on the outside group. And remember, even those nearest to him, his family, weren't considered in his group yet. They will, will later on when they believe the gospel after the resurrection. So getting, he's getting his disciples prepared to go out to be servants in this world, to live and proclaim the gospel, to continue to plunder Satan's kingdom by rescuing souls for Christ by the gospel, preaching the gospel, and the source of power for believers is the Spirit of God, not their own. And so I must ask, what group are you in? Are you in the inside group or are you in the outside group? So I think you need to make sure today that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because if you are, you will continue. You will march on through difficulties and problems, through ups and downs, in valleys and on mountain peaks. You will continue because you'll continue in God's power and God's strength. And he will take you someday, you and I, into the eternal kingdom of God where there will be nothing but righteous, no sin, no crying, no death, none of those things that we're used to here, no curse, and we will be with Christ forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. And that day is coming. So now, though, is the day to make sure you're sitting at Jesus' feet. Let's pray. I pray this morning, Lord, for your people. I pray, Lord, that they really understand the gospel. I pray, Lord, that they would not straddle the fence and live a duplistic life while saying they believe. Because we know, Lord, when someone comes to believe in you as their Lord and Savior, everything changes in their life. Not that they become perfect immediately, but they the direction of their life means they want to follow you and serve you. They want to put off sin. They want to confess sin. They don't want to live the way they used to. So I pray, Lord, that you would show everyone here this morning where they stand with you as far as discipleship. And I pray, Lord, that they would have believed in you by repentance and faith and that they would be the ones sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning the rest of everything you want us to know. And I just ask you, Lord, you would use this in a way to bring those who don't know you to Christ, those who, are, who think they're near you but are not to you, and those who, Lord, uh, have not yet believed just to come and confess you as their Lord and Savior and follow you the rest of their life. I pray that you would do that today and use this message for that purpose. And I pray in Christ's name, amen.